Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. When you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard, and Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. Welcome back, episode nine, Ross and Brandon show, and uh, nine of seven. <laughs> nine of seven. That's right. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just plugging along, continuing on, I guess. No, it's uh, <laughs> it's it's cool. Again, I, you know, thank you to everyone that's been listening, the shares. Um, it's always cool when I see people that, you know, you, you meet people online. Uh, I'll give him a shout out because he's he's listened quite a bit or shared some of the stuff. Is Jeff Harrison? You know, he's a guy yeah. I met through traditional archery and got to got to talking to him a little bit and um you know he's got a cool story he's, his brother is very well known in the industry and you know for guys like that that you know you just meet kind of casually but then you see well no they're taking an hour you know out of their time or whatever to to listen to an episode and then furthermore to share it or even engage yeah. messaging you about it or whatnot like it, it's it's a cool thing because you know i was doing the peace love and meat podcast and not that I didn't enjoy the interviews. I mean, Greg and I had some amazing interviews. You and I had an interview, Logan. I mean, a lot of people that I care very much about. But for some reason, at this point in time, I feel like a continuous conversation might be important than just the highlight reel conversations. Totally. Uh, because, you know, you're going through stuff. I'm going through stuff. We're dealing with the world as it is. And, um, you know, for me at least – and you even mentioned it in a couple episodes ago, when you have a different guest every week, you're always at the starting block. You know, you're yes. always just trying to condense a lot of really nuanced stuff or, you know, a depth of a person into an hour. And I don't know if, you know, this is the Netflix version. You know what I mean? <laughs> <Right>. It's like <laughs> the mini series, the mini series. So, <laughs> yeah. but, I, but I think it's been effective and enjoyable for me just because one, I, I think that you and I have a good rapport with each other, but I also think that we're just two normal guys that aren't trying to, to hide the fact that we're just normal guys. Hmm. And, um, I, I think that's resonated with some people, at least in the messaging that I've seen is, uh, that it's just, it's just nice to know that there's people that are talking about these things. There are people that are living in a, in a very just normal trying to do the best you can kind of existence and, and actually thriving in that, you know, it's not, yeah. I, I don't think that everybody is supposed to have the same life necessarily. And I don't think for some people, even people that have things, uh, let's say money, for example, if you have a ton of money, I know a lot of guys with money that are miserable. Um, for somebody else that has money, I know people that are very happy with it. I just mm -hmm. think it's defining what you want and chasing that life, not chasing the things that people or media tells you that you should. And that kind of brings us up to a little bit of the conversation we were having before we started. Mm -hmm. uh, both of us woke up to the FAA kind of crash there. Uh, I, I don't know if at this point it's uh, 
it's about 11 15 this morning and i don't know if at this point if they think it was hacked if it was a system failure if it was something but you know it, it brought us to the conversation of what are we doing ourselves to prepare for a techno technology advancing i guess maybe yeah. world um yep. whereas there's there's constant conversation about um you know, something along the lines of a world bank or, a, you know, cryptocurrency for the federal government. And, and I'm not an expert on these things. Ross is not an expert on these things, but I think that as much buzz as there is about them, like they say, where there's smoke, there's fire. There's probably at least at the, at the entry level of just familiarizing yourself with these concepts. And, and we were talking about AI and such. I mean, let's kind of break this down. So yeah. one, as a guy that kind of grew up in, in Idaho, which is somewhat remote by a lot of people's standards as it is. Yep. What is this influx of, of technology and, and the seemingly ever advancing technology that is coming? How does that impact a guy like you that grew up? Let's just say a little, a little more nature based than a lot than yeah. most people. Well, it's kind of funny because my, you know, I've seen it maybe said better than I'll say it now, um, from different people, but my, my age where, where I am, I was like the, the two or three years on either side of me were really kind of like the last age generation yeah. to, to grow up without, without the technology part of it. Like it is now at, as a young kid, how old were you like, when you got a cell phone? I was 16 yeah, when I got same. my first, and it was a little flip, little <laughs> flip phone deal that had T9 word that I could text in my sweatshirt yeah. pocket without looking during class. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I got pretty good at that too. I remember yeah. when, when I got the free texting and free nights and week, weekends or something, it was like that changed everything. But, um, I can remember for the first phone I got, it was a, uh, it was a Motorola. Mm -hmm. It was, I don't know. I remember my grandmother, uh, she works for hospice and she was on a call unit and she i remember she had a she's like a 92 or 3 mercury cougar <laughs> and uh, she had this you know big block yep corded cell yep. phone you know it looked like yep. one of those those vietnam era like transporter phones or whatever but she, that was the first introduction to that and i thought she was i thought she was big shit you know rolling around in that and making calls the, at 5 dollars uh, a minute or whatever <laughs> the the razors the razors were like what everybody had the year that i got I think my that, phone or whatever like i think, I think that was what, right around that time i think that that introduction right there and i mean i think it was already coming but i remember that phone specifically kind of being the stake in the ground that your yep. phone is not just a mechanism of conversation. It is now a yeah. fashion statement. It it's is a, a, it's a thing status statement. Yep. You know, if you don't have the latest phone, um, you're just not it. You know what I mean? And it was funny because, you know, growing up and, and the only reason at the time that I did have one, cause I had friends that had had some for a couple of years already. Sure. Like I had friends that had gotten them, you know, like an eighth grade or whatever. Um, but I was a sophomore and the only reason that I gotten it even then was because at that point I was driving. Yep. And same. so, so my dad's like, look, if you're going to be driving around and doing whatever I need to be able to, you know, we need to be able to reach you and let us know where you are and when you're coming home kind of a did thing. You and have that was a, the reason I got one. Did you have service? Cause the one I had, it was, um, it was basically a hundred minutes and it was never turned on unless it was like emergent. It was such an, it was such a we ineffective <laughs> system because my parents couldn't call me. Um, I couldn't, you know, I never, like it was in my, my glove box as literally like as, as it was, um, it was like my end range on a mountain, you know, right. it was like if you're in case of emergency or only. whatever, but yeah, I mean, I, I probably had a hundred minutes for eight, 10 months, you know, and never was, used them, you yeah. know? And then I think for some reason we got on the, like a family plan or something like that, but I so, just, it's just evolved so fast from, from, I remember when we got our first cordless phone. Yep, we had a rotary, and then we went to a punch button, and then we went to a cordless, and that thing still had the antenna on it that you had to like pull yeah. out. Um, I remember when we got rid of the house phone, and everybody and everybody just now had their cell phones at that point too. Like that was kind of like a weird that never happened. Like that, that never that, happened in my dad's house. That, like, that you, life you has kind of landline, gone now. Son. <laughs> right. You have a damn landline. You never know so, what natural disasters the, coming. All right, so the 
what I was saying is like when I was going through this, I was a little bitter about it because my sister, who's two years younger than me, ended up getting her phone the same day that I got my phone. Yeah. Like my first one, because it was like, well, your brother's got one. So, we need, you know, you can yeah. have one kind of thing. So I was kind of bitter about that. But I remember like we had we were on like one of the family share deals so there was like a thousand because texting was like the thing we had like a thousand texts to share between four phones yep right and like if we were because it was like costing extra money if you go over and it was like a big deal if because it was always either me or my sister that were taking the text over the limit you know (laughs) (laughs) so it was like and then i was talking with somebody about this not too recently or you know uh actually pretty recently i mean uh the button on those flip phones that gave you internet like yeah. quote unquote internet it was just and like if you yeah the globe and if you hit it and it turned on the internet how like oh. expensive what well, you like panicked and you're like just taking oh, yeah. the battery out of the phone so you don't have to like <laughs> charge your parents money like and that was i mean i'm thinking like that was what an actual phone you know that's all it was like yeah. we'd call and we'd text our friends or whatever and, and going over your text amount was like you, you don't ever do that. Otherwise it's, you're getting the phone taken away because well, you, you know, you're costing money. Well, if you think about it, like the, the phone companies are actually just very effective drug dealers. I mean, if you want to get somebody hooked on something, you give them a hit of crack or you, I mean, I'm talking yeah. like you, you give them the drug and you get them addicted and then they're a customer forever. Well, yep. you get people addicted to free text messaging, free calls after nine o'clock. Well, Hey, mm-hmm. I'm already paying you know, $39 a month for this. Well, it's $69 a month. I can have free calls all day or unlimited right. calls all day or whatever. <laughs> I mean, they just keep, they just keep like, keep you on that bait line. Oh, we'll give you a $5,000. Phones used to cost $500, but they're $4,000 now. We can put you on a payment plan for that forever. Exactly. You know, they just make it as comfortable exactly. as ever to get addicted to it, you know? And we had the, I had like my, you know, in, in high school anyways, I remember this, like I had my, you know, my, my everyday carry at the time was like, I had my, I had my pocket knife and like the little pocket in the inside the pocket, you know, yeah. because in the main pockets, I had my phone on one and my 120 oh, you didn't gigabyte do the belt clip. You no, didn't I didn't do the belt clip. Damn. I didn't do the clip. I know <laughs> I had my phone in one wallet in the back and then my 120 gig iPod, like with yes. the click wheel in yes. the other that had my headphones, like going through my shirt, hanging out all day long. So oh, like, dude. like walking through high school, like in between classes, I would just pop earbuds in and like, I knew where everything was on the click wheel on the iPod. Like <laughs> those things were awesome and they yeah. were like indestructible, but all of that became one device and then you give it all of these extra capabilities and it was just crazy to see. And, and now like my, uh, well, I guess when she got her phone, my, my youngest or my, one of my cousins, she was like 11 when she got her yeah. first, you know, but, but it was an iPhone yeah. and I'm like, man, I would never in a million years have gotten an iPhone at 14, let no. alone, let alone, you know, 11. Did you ever, have you ever looked back through any of your iPod playlists or anything like My that? My mom has all of them. So I actually washed in the washing machine, like three of them oh, yeah. over the course of my, cause I forgot to take them out of my pocket, but she kept them all. And one of them still works, but it only works if you put it on a, like a sound dock. Yeah. So the, oh, the yeah, headphone yeah. jack doesn't work. So we have, my mom has like an old Bose sound dock thing. Yeah. And so we put that on there and. And I mean, I, my music taste really hasn't changed much. It's a lot of the same stuff I was yeah. listening to back then, but it was like, it was kind of fun to like, Oh man, I probably haven't heard this song yeah. since I was in high school. I've got, um, I've got an iPod right up here beside me. I actually, it was in my truck forever. I, I had a bag. So I, I, I typically take care of my truck pretty well, but I had a bag in there, uh, from years ago that they had done a detail and they just kind of put it in a, in a grocery bag and somehow, mm-hmm. I have one of those um, kind of bazooka speakers under the back seat. Yep. And when they when they put the bag in there, they just kind of slipped it under the seat and it worked its way around that speaker. I don't know. Yeah. But I didn't find it for years. And the other day uh, after I hunted and kind of was cleaning out for the season, I was going through everything like real meticulously and I found an iPod. And I went through it and it was the iPod that I got right when I moved to Westside. And it had all of my training cycles because that was how I would label my playlist was like by the training cycle. (laughs) That's awesome. And you can see, or at least I can see, you know, some of the parallels of timelines for these things and things that had happened. And like the music went from, you know, there was a lot of rap and heavy metal stuff on there, like radio metal kind of stuff to as I got progressively more into that culture, 
it was like the cannibal corpse started creeping in. It became the thrash it, it became metal. The thrash and, metal yeah. and like every rap song was about shooting everybody you see, uh, that kind of thing. So uh, it, it, it was just funny to, to look back because I, I'd be, to be completely honest, you know, I still listen to a wide variety. Actually, that was one of the craziest things on the Spotify thing this year. It was, I had an ungodly breakdown for the year. It was just unbelievable. <laughs> but it was like 3,500 different artists that I listened wow. to this year. So that's cool. And, but what I'll do, and, I, and I'll give you an example, not to get a mile off subject, but um, like I got into where podcasts, the, the same 50 songs that I always find myself listening to were just like mm-hmm. blah. But I wanted something, and I, and I had been listening to some of those like uh, sleep frequency sounds yeah. going to sleep or yep. um, some meditation type stuff. And I found lo-fi and so Dude, I, I got my work some, music. Yeah. Yeah. I got into lo-fi. It's yeah. just, it's like a little better than like, I want to say elevator music, but that's an insult to it. It's, it's just like these chill beats mm-hmm. at a certain frequency. that are just, it feels good. Right. Yep. So I was listening to that. And then I got into uh, this one song, my buddy Jason sent me a song and it's just like, I don't even call it mumble rap. It's like lo-fi beat, but it's just got like, it's audio tuned, but I can't understand a damn word they say. I mean, I don't (laughs) understand what the hell's going on, but the beat of it and like the cadence of the, so I've gotten into this other genre. I think it's called funk P H O N K funk. Um, (laughs) It's big like in Europe and the guy actually that I found that I like, I don't know how to pronounce his name either. Cause it's a, it's like that, um, I'm not even going to say it, but the guy that was XXXTN, you know, the guy. Okay, died. yeah, 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 the rapper. I don't know how to say his name. Yeah, uh, yep, you yep. know, it's the either. same kind of situation going on over here. Yep. There's numbers and symbols and letters, yeah. and, it, and it spells like. <laughs> it's like all of them are named by Elon Musk. Yeah, it spells, yeah. It spells out <laughs> grassroots, or that's how you pronounce it, but it looks like a jumble of yeah. symbols. But anyway, <laughs> right. um, but yeah, some of that stuff is where I'm at now, but going through is like, I'll just let it run on a playlist on a three, four hour drive, mm-hmm. well, hell, you, you might listen to 50, 60, 70 new people in that time yeah. frame. But it was cool that I didn't, I, I definitely have favorites, like the ones that I always go back to, yeah. but I didn't mind that it was 3,500 different people. Like it was kind of cool yeah, to see cool. how much music I explored. Um, but again, I was back in the top 0.1% of Sturgill fans, if that says anything. So <laughs> always amongst 3,500 well, strangers, time you listen, every time you listen to them, you listen to the entire album every oh, time. Yeah. So well, you that know one I mean? album, this is yeah. no lie. Uh, during COVID when 2020 hit, I'd been, I'd been following Tyler and Sturgill around. I actually saw Sturgill in DC. That was a cool story. So Chad Conley with the special or, um, mm-hmm. special forces foundation, he had been working with uh, Justin Lasick, a uh, guy that was on Rogan that lost both his legs and, and uh, told an amazing story on there. So I got to know Justin a little bit. I got to know um, uh, some of the guys in the band on both sides, Tyler and, and Sturgill's mm-hmm. side. And so I was – but Chad had called me. He's like, hey, man, uh, you want to go to a show tonight and see Sturgill? And this was right when he was doing those four micro shows before the show the tour yeah, kicked yeah, off yeah. he had done yep. the one in la the night before he was doing dc this night and then the pony up in uh new york city so he's like yeah it starts in like uh 11 12 hours and i was like where is it? he goes it's in dc i was like well i'm 10 and a half hours from dc <laughs> i literally got in my shower rinsed myself hoe bath myself <laughs> and then uh, got on some clothes and drove straight there and got in the door and, and saw the show, talked to all the guys um, after the show. And that started pretty much a successive run where I saw them in New York. I saw them and I was actually in Virginia Beach to see them on my birthday. Um, and they canceled the world uh, when I was there. Oh, crazy. I was there, but um, I was there with a bunch of seals and we were supposed to go see see the show. And then uh, but I saw them nine times that tour that's awesome and dude it was so funny because tyler opened for sturgill and you know tyler is is just a phenomenon and Sturgill's a little bit more you get into that cult club you know people yeah. are just obsessed with him yep you would see what what sturgill referred to as the the uh the eddie boys you know the mm. guys that come in in their Columbia fishing shirts, their Harriet pants, <laughs> and they know two's Tyler Childers songs, and right. then they're on TikTok the whole time. And then uh, he was like, "But the sh- the arenas would empty out. 
they would be half full after Tyler played and Sturgill did the intro to because he only played um he only played Sound and Fury. So he would oh, do okay. he would do it in successive front order, front to yeah. back. Yep. And dude and but the way the way Sturgill performs, like um called arms or um you know some of his other songs like uh I don't even, it's like I'm his biggest fan and I don't even fucking know his songs. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but he'll do like these 15 minute runs and jam sessions in all the songs. So, but anyway, it, it just um, seeing them and, and getting to see that level of music. And I was seeing a show about two to three times a week during that period. That's cool. But it's, it's just cool to look back and see how much my music has changed. And yeah. like going back to that, playlist kind of connected me to that mindset which let me listen to it through different ears if that makes sense yeah it but does. it's not stuff i would ever put on and listen to now you know well it's funny because i remember the, the so the very first ipod i ever had was the original shuffle like the long mm-hmm. one that looked like the stick right yeah, yeah. didn't have a screen or whatever and i had it on a lanyard <laughs> because i would lose it because it was so small so i literally yeah. would, like wore it around my neck but it was and i i'm looking at this or thinking about this now on the capacity of these things at the time was like earth shattering. Right. Yeah. And it was 512 megabyte storage. Yeah. Right. Like on the whole thing, yeah. like you can buy a storage card at Walmart for 10 bucks. That's got like 10 times that Yeah. <laughs> now, you know what I mean? Yep. And so, but, at the, but it doesn't have a screen. Right. So yeah. like I had to go into iTunes and every time I was going to put a new song on to take one off because I had it, I had it completely full. And so I would like have to have this order where I knew where every song was yeah. and I had, so I had like 125 songs on the thing or however many it could fit. I had literally memorized the order of all 125 songs on that thing. So I could click and know like how many skips forward to get to the song <laughs> I wanted, yeah. and like how many skips back. And so it was funny, like thinking about that and then just the evolution of all that. And then now since christmas when we got this record player that i've sent you some yeah, yeah. pictures and videos of or whatever we went and raided my mom's house and she has this whole like upper shelf in a closet that was all the way across the closet full of old albums and so we went and took like maybe 20 of them out of there and like just kind of filtered through i mean and they're all the originals like from the year that yeah, they were all released my dad has some of those you know and so like we were going through them and i think i said i mean i sent you some videos or whatever but going back through those I've been listening to almost nothing but Zeppelin for like two and a half weeks now. Yeah. Like just rolling through all of it again. And I'm just like, wow, it doesn't matter. Like I can be away from it for two years and not, you know, only hear them once in a while. And then I'll come back and it's like, okay, well, I guess I'm going to be here for a month. Yeah. Well, dude, that's do nothing else. That's what I like because, um, yeah, I, I kind of did that with Sturgill, uh, you know, because I burnt, I just literally every time I trained, I was training for 40 minutes and that album yep. is 41 minutes. And <laughs> yep. there's a lot of like, there's a lot of innuendo and messaging through that album. And it was probably relative to how I was feeling in a lot of ways too. So it was just like the perfect album to train, but I needed to let it breathe for a while. And now like when I go back to it or hear a song from it, mm-hmm. on a playlist, I'm like, yes. But uh, it just transports you. That's like one of the coolest things is like that was like going back and thinking of those iPods from high school and stuff. There'll be songs and like you haven't heard it since then, but you remember exactly the moment the last time you heard it. Or like there's a memory attached to it from like, oh, man, I remember this was when I was driving my green Ford Ranger. Yeah. Like taking my girlfriend home after school. You know what I mean? Like this is what I was listening to during that month. And I like, I remember it. It's kind of crazy. Dude, I was out at, uh, I was out at Chino and me and Michael were in the gym there. And, uh, that's, that's JP's son, Michael Vicente. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he was in there just kind of cleaning some stuff up and we were talking and he, he always has like banger music playing. Like he has (laughs) these, he has like, he's into the beat stuff. Like, not EDM yeah. necessarily, but somewhere between lo-fi and EDM, like beat drop stuff. Yep. So he's listening to that. Well, his playlist shuffles over to uh, Thuggish Ruggish Bone. <laughs> Dude, I haven't heard that song in a long time, but it was like, whoa, this is like the hardest hitting <laughs> first song. First time again. First time again. <laughs> but I remember uh, I was like in sixth grade and this kid named Billy Wagers um, thugged as hell. But he uh, he had like a like a black market copy of the Bone album because you know they were they were still they were just beyond like I don't know how this kid <laughs> I don't know how this kid operated but he always had like 
bootleg shit of everything, like every mm-hmm. single thing. He's like, man, I got mm-hmm. this from so-and-so and he got it from so-and-so. <laughs> like he always had a story and we're like 11 years old. But uh, <laughs> anyway, I remember hearing that. And then also um, the Dr. Dre album and Doggy Style all at the same time, like mm-hmm. sixth grade, middle school and stuff. But uh, yeah, I got in trouble for having the Get a Grip by Aerosmith on the bus because it had the, the nipple <laughs> with the piercing in it. <laughs> And then they started going through all our Walkmans and they found doggy oh, style Walkmans. and they found all that other shit. But yeah, man, music, it's funny. Cause I heard somebody say it that was way smarter than me. We never evolve above the feelings with music that we do when mm. we're a kid. Like mm. the music that we find when we're in that transitional 14 yeah. to 25 year old period is the music we generally listen to for the rest of our lives. Yep. I can. It's interesting. And, and that is super like you, that age gap, because I was just thinking about this the other day as a, because I was thinking about all of these bands that are all old guys now. Right. And like mm-hmm. they'll come out with new albums, but the stuff that everybody wants to hear is the stuff from anywhere from 30 to 50 years ago, depending yeah, yeah. on how old. these. And I was thinking about it. There's and I don't know if there's any, if this is some sort of theory I'm coming up with in my head, but I've been thinking about it a lot recently, actually. So it's, it's good that we're talking about this now so I can flesh this out. I was thinking that there is this period of time creatively, right? Where in life you are like, you are max sort of creative, like the same way that you are max physical prowess, right? right. Like you, you reach a certain point, you're not going to be any, any stronger, any whatever after that. You have this range where you're going to be your peak athletically. Like I, I'm, I'm sure that there is something like that with creativity as well, because I'm thinking like, especially since I started listening to, to Zeppelin and all this stuff again, I'm listening to these full albums and I'm going back and I'm like reading the li- literal liner notes, like yeah. on the, in the album casings, which are so cool. Like, I love that shit. John Bonham was like 22 years old yeah. when Led Zeppelin one came out. Like in my mind, I'm always thinking of them as just like older guys. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because they're, you know, 30, 40, 40 something years older than me. Yeah. And so like, I forget that there was a time when they were like early twenties and that's when they're like 20 to 30 was when their best stuff was done. Yeah. And, and I mean, for them that didn't, you know, obviously it was done in 1980. They didn't do anything after that, but like with the case with all these other bands that release albums the every Stones decade, just, just to try something new the Stones, this year. Yeah. Elton John, Aerosmith, like all these guys that kept releasing music and touring, but people that are going to see them are like, we just want to hear yeah. the hits from the seventies. Like yeah. we're here to hear, you know, Rocket Man, I don't care what you did two years ago. Well, think, you know what I mean? You know, I just said this, um, and it kind of struck me. You know, why? And, and this guy was, I want to say he was a psychologist, but I don't want to put a quote on that, like that he is a psychologist. I think he was, or he at least has some formal training in that field. But he was talking about that age range specifically because 14 typically marks the end of innocence. That's when you're starting to run around with an older crowd. Uh, you're in high school now, you have some more freedom that you don't typically have. So you start to find your own music, whether it's on your own or through your peers. And then at 25 is when life kind of kicks you in the teeth. And it's like, now you have a mortgage, now you're married, now you have a kid. So that 11 year window is like the remembrance of freedom. That is the time when you were most yourself and alive. And then Interesting. at, you know, on the other side of that, you're being handheld like a baby by your parents. And after that, you're Mm -hmm. kind of shackled to this thing called the life as we know it. Mm -hmm. But that 11 year window is what this guy theorized is pretty much the, the, the paramount freedom that a person will feel. So that's why in that time frame, so many memories, uh, you know, the, the heavy ones feel harder and the, the beautiful ones feel lighter. You know, it just, it's just a really cool time period in a person's life in in the way that society is structured now. Yeah. And you think about too, it's, you know, and I was, as it relates to music, Zeppelin being the one that was right at the front of mind, because that's what I've been listening to for so much, but it's like every generation of music, like we go to the nineties stuff that I like love, like that's my favorite stuff, all of the Soundgarden and and those guys. I thought you meant Aqua and... No doubt and stuff like that. Jewel. Jewel. Now, Jewel's pretty badass. Yeah, she's she pretty is. badass. She she's, is. But yeah. But like those guys at the same time were in that same 
age bracket, like when all of those albums came, like, you know what I mean? So it's so interesting. Like every generation has the hits and they're all written by anywhere from 22 to 33 years old people. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I mean, like there's obviously exceptions of if you're famous and you keep writing some stuff and you could do some stuff later on and be creative and after all this, but I was just thinking about it the other day. I'm like, that's so, and, and now still like all of the stuff that's super popular now are written or performed by, for, but like what's considered pop music, right? Yeah. Considering that written by, performed by those people in that same age range. Well, I think this kind of actually ties into somewhat of, it ties somewhat into what we're talking about, of how things evolve and, you know, music has evolved because I love that, that um, parallel between one of Beyonce's songs written and credited for being written by like 18 people. And it's, literally 37 words over and over and over. (laughs) Like there's only 37 words in the song and 10 of them are said 58 times or something like that. (laughs) And then it has uh, something written by like, you know, John Lennon or whoever, you know, and it just, it shows the poetry and the prose and how that has evolved and how like, I, I do think that music has grown and evolved, but maybe some of the, some of the juice from the squeeze isn't as good. I don't know. Like, how do you, how do you quantify that? Well, like, how do I, how do I get to say that something isn't good if somebody feels right. at sixteen right. years old what I felt hearing Zeppelin? You know what I mean? Like, and I was thinking about this too because if we look at what a lot of that's this exact example that you were like a Beyonce song that is yeah. pretty simplistic putting it nicely right like it's just got a catchy it's 500, beat and it's 500 million dollars simplistic that's what i, I mean know that, I, you know what i but, mean but the, but i think there's uh it's broth it's anybody it can is. drink it exactly <laughs> you know? but the the writing technique like was was used by the actual people performing the songs back then but also we look at the transition in maybe in education just in general, or kind of like where we see a lot of these other, where these younger generations aren't as connected to a lot of things intellectually that a lot of younger generation, like, you know, the guys in, in Zeppelin were writing about Lord of the Rings and yeah, like dude. telling, <laughs> telling like, and, and actually writing like stories, in you know, the but they, that's because they, of Mordor. Yes. Yeah. Like they're, but they're reading books and yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, so I think there's a lot of the lifestyle around those generations as it gets the, the, it, everything we've talked about with social media, it's how many times we've done it. Like that just feeds into what ends up being created. And then everybody that consumes it is already in that same place as well. So it's just, everybody's in that same cycle of, uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's even making sense, but like no, I, I was it. thinking about it in relation to like Zeppelin again, specifically and like the Lord of the Rings example, nobody was, they were reading like thousand page. Like I literally have Lord of the Rings right here. Cause that's what I was using to hold my mic stand up a second ago, <laughs> but <laughs> it's all three books in one. It's like 1200 pages. Like, yeah. right. And that's not being read by many 18 year olds right now, unless it's required for school. No. You know what I mean? No, I do. I do know that. And, I guess, you know, I keep trying to hold to the origin of what we said we were going to talk about. And I, and I think <laughs> going that, off. But no, and I think that's important because it's like maybe this stuff is more important than what we thought was important when we started talking, mm. you know. But um, I, I worry about that heavily, you know, because I, I look at, you know, I look at kids today and I look at the, the, the heightened attraction to video games, right? Yeah. Well, I used to kind of view it as like, this is terrible. They need to get outside. They need to, they need to expand their imaginations. And again, another psychologist talked about that, that too much too early can stunt the ability of imagination because every Mm -hmm. board has parameters that are limited. So if you're limiting a child's mind that is continuously limited by outside factors, the rest of their life, what is the end result? You know, so, but I also look at a, at a world and in a, in a, maybe it is still disgusting when you say a workforce that is yeah. going more towards people locked in a cubicle, headphones on looking at a screen. Well, it's kind of scary to me when you make that parallel, are we training our kids to be sitting in a cubicle with headphones on talking to somebody yeah. over a network, looking at a screen? Yep. But at the same time, you, you put a different spin on that. 
oh, wow, my kid is in the Navy and he's doing analytics and he's got headphones on looking at a screen, saving people's Mm -hmm. lives. So Mm -hmm. I wrestle with that. Like I wrestle with my true feeling about that. But another thing that's a caveat of that same (laughs) argument is do we take an artist and deprive him of the paintbrush, but give him a tool that he can learn to navigate as masterfully as he would a paintbrush, but something like AI mm-hmm. does the work. Does right. his ability to code or to input description surpass mine because he has a, he has an artist's eye or he would have mm. been an artist with a paintbrush. We talked about this a little bit with John Butler last time. Like, yeah, what is the medium and what is the outcome of being able to express that medium? Will an artist, will a, will a John Bonham or let's say a Jimmy Page who in, and Robert Plant who wrote a lot of Zeppelin music, would they feel as connected to the music if they just gave, oh, okay, all right, Mr. AI system, let's, let's have a song about heartbreak. There's a pretty girl, <laughs> Gollum. Mordor, you know, like, (laughs) but would they have felt as successful, even if their wealth was 10 X, you know, is that, and I guess I question that myself because a lot of the stuff I can see benefit for, I can see benefit for systems automating and, um, you know, especially in terms of medicine or, you know, something that could really improve the, the impact of human life. I wonder how susceptible the human consciousness is going to be to receiving, accepting and celebrating art Hmm. that is navigated by someone, but created by something. Right. You know, well, the, the example, um, well, first of all, as far as like the artwork specifically thing, because there's like the two big things right now that are kind of taken over a lot of this conversation, which is, I think it's chat GPT yeah. is like the writing one. Mm-hmm. And then the one that we've used to kind of like mess around with mid journey for the art stuff is kind of was, you know, kind of started as like a fun, just look at what this thing can do. It's kind of fun. And full disclosure, all of the podcast artwork for our shows are just like random images I create in yeah. mid journey just cause they're fun. And they kind of are like along the theme of what we talk about. So that's it to, to point to that though. But there was, I think last week or two weeks ago, did you see the clip of, of Jordan Peterson talking about chat GPT? No. So he was, he was doing some kind of talk and he was saying that he gave it a prompt and I can't remember exactly what the thing it was supposed to write about was, but it was like this very complex Jordan Peterson-y topic, sure. right? Like it was described the distinctions between like these two massive philosophies or whatever, but write it in the style of Jordan Peterson's yeah. writing. So he's telling it to write it like him. And he said, in seconds, I was given an essay that was actually pretty difficult for me to see as different from my own writing. Sure. No, and I, so he's, and he was terrified by it. Like that, his whole point was like that scared the crap out of him that in that, you know, literal seconds, yeah, it cranked out something that even him was like, yeah, that sounds like me. And so if anybody else is reading that, they could totally think that that was something that Jordan had yeah. written. You know? Well, I think um, even the even the mid journey that you and I fooled around with just a little mm-hmm. bit, um, I think you can go so far as to say, and if it's not this one, there is one that's existent, but you can be like, I would like a, a painting of a horse in the style of Matisse. And, yeah. and it will it will give you a, a photograph or you know painting style image of a horse in the style of Matisse, or mm-hmm. you can have, um, you, you know, you could say I'd like a horse painted by Matisse in starry night by Van Gogh, you know, mm. all those kind of things. Yeah. And that's where it gets funky for me because it's like how much of our perception of what art is, is, is dictated by what art has been, you mm. know, like that goes back somewhat to the conversation that we had last time about these guys that are just the fringe artists that are pushing the boundaries, forcing you to consider that, okay, this thing can be done. Is it worth sticking around like Jimi Hendrix or Mm -hmm. when Dylan plugged in the electric guitar, you know, like Mm -hmm. they're making a statement probably bigger than music. This is an artist's footprint. You know, it's like, I am putting my, not to say bend on the strings, but I'm putting my bend on the strings. Mm -hmm. Uh, Does that 
forever change our perception of what music is, you know? And like, are we, are we drawn to certain styles of art or music or, you know, sculpture because of what we have seen or what art has accepted as high art? Hmm. It makes me think that there will be this point and maybe, it, maybe it won't be like a, a super definitive line, right? But there will be, and, and maybe it's, maybe it's not even a line that's discernible because this, this, whatever is being shown is so blurred with what people perceive to be created by a human, right? Like maybe there's no way to tell a difference anymore, like what Jordan was talking about. But as it relates to a lot of the AI and automation, I remember hearing, um, I think it was, I think it was Dr. Andy Galpin. Uh-huh. It was an old shrugged episode a couple of years ago. They were talking about the book that him and Brian McKenzie had written together talking about technology. It's called unplugged. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, they were talking about that and they were saying, you know, like AI is going to eventually take over all workout programming that you can, you know, you, you'll be able to like get in. And this was like four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. And they're like, you can go in and say, I want to, you know, this is my goal. I have this time frame or whatever. And it's going to crank out like a legitimate workout program for you. And yeah. you can already find those for free online, but like the personalized thing. But he said, but what's going to be considered more valuable at that time is the personal connection that you would have with a coach and communicating back and forth and someone who understands you and can make adjustments rather than just like popping equations into a box and getting feedback. Like that will, that will exist and that will take a huge chunk of, of market pie. Well, right. uh, But but more value will be, yeah, more, more value will come to the actual coaches. And what I would imagine on, on the, you know, the music and the creativity side was that might make, the actual the thing that was created by people be perceived as more valuable in that sense. Yeah, I think I think so. And I was just interrupting you there to say that um, Mike Israel and Chad Smith at Juggernaut uh, and RP Renaissance Periodization they've done a really yep. uh, I think forward thinking job because they've had the AI system that is it's also uh, self regulating around what what data you put into it. Like you, yes, you rate your workout you kind of rate the difficulty and it scales the next week you know it's pretty pretty interesting stuff and you know i i think that personally i am somewhat on that line of what you're talking about in that uh i can go i can go to a store and buy a very effective chef's knife hunting knife whatever 150 200 like it can mm-hmm. do the job but as i've gotten a little older and maybe had a little a little more expendable income, you know. I want to seek out makers. I want to seek out people that, mm-hmm. and I and I definitely uh, look at how they're done. You know, my friend Brandon, he's a hell of a musician. He's just a hell of an artist. He draws. He he blacksmiths. He does everything. But he was committed to making knives only with a wood fire or a coal fire. You know, so mm. his own. He, he had no gas. So his was done very, very traditional style. Yeah. Um, some of my other friends, they have, you know, they have big furnaces and things like that. And, and it's not to diminish any of them. They're all masters yep. of their craft. Yep. But it's just, I, I pay attention to nuance in some of those areas where I don't think it's a better knife. I don't think it's a sharper knife. I just respect the fact that this motherfucker chopped wood to, <laughs> yeah. as a part of the process to make this knife. Yeah. Um, that kind of thing. So I can definitely see that. And, and I would hope, and I think, especially in a community like, like music or art, I always think there's probably going to be some, I mean, because much of music is accepted auto tune, but we still recognize a, a once in a lifetime voice like Tyler Childers, you know, like that. I, I think that there will probably be some lean times for artists in the wake of this. But I think those that might be able to endure and maybe even in the face of AI and say, you know what, if AI is going to evolve, maybe I should too. And maybe instead of just playing it safe, maybe that becomes Jackson Pollock. You know, so again, it's stimulus and adaptation. The stimulus is that now you got some pretty aggressive competition. If you're an artist, the adaptation is to go balls out, you know, or tits out or whatever you want to do. Like just, you know, get yeah, out the, there and, uh, and go to the and, and I are- Exactly. And I already know that there are some designers that are like graphic designer type guys that work in logos and mm-hmm. that, that are 
you know, have come out and like made public posts about how upset they are that like mid journey is being used by people to create logos Mm -hmm. because it is like, I mean, it's like you said, perceived it's competition, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and where do you place, do you place the value on the human touch of it or just on how fast you can get a good enough product, you know, like it's kind of the, the three pronged thing that always shows up. It's, you can have it fast, you can have it well, or you can have it cheap. Yeah. You know, like you only get to pick two of those things. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, no, I think that, uh, I think it can be, and really just now is the first time I've kind of had that thought that it can actually be a motivator, um, rather than just a relegator, you know, it, it really should and could propel people forward. And maybe the answer is that we learn from it, you know, we observe it, we learn from it, we can't keep up, but maybe there's enough appeal of where a person is as an artist to what they observe people are are wanting from this automated system. Maybe they can push themselves into that middle ground somewhere, you know, elevate themselves, but also remain authentic and real. And that might be the win overall for a person. I don't know. Do you think that it might stunt just the general creativity of an artist because they're, you know, well, that was seeing the, you know, like the example where you write, you put in a prompt of a song. It's like, that's pretty good. You know, that's one less thing I've got to do to make this song kind of a thing. Well, that was my fear of a child. Like, do you, do you train the the child and all these skills and trades and, and how to's on, on a million things, or do you just teach them how to code? Do you teach them how to prompt? Do you teach them how to guide this missile, so to say, in a way that they can potentially create a better end result, but it is, it is maneuverability of a machine. And, and again, it falls into a weird teeter totter place for me because I like the real, I like the, I like the flaws you know, and yeah. th- like speaking of Zeppelin again, if you listen to albums one, two, and three, if you hear a squeak in the background, it's John Bonham's uh, drum stool seat. You know, mm-hmm. like it, it's when he swiveled or when he would like be putting pressure on the bass drum, you can hear it squeak. I like those kind of things. You know, some yep. people want that stuff edited out or buffered out or just get him a different stool, mm-hmm. but I like that stuff. You know, it feels yeah. a little, that's why I like live albums typically more than recorded albums, mm-hmm. because I love when you hear somebody straining through a song or they, they hit a different note than is on the recording. Um, and, and I'll just say it flat out, like having seen guys like Tyler and Sturgill, as I mentioned before, man, the albums are, are great, but it's, it's, it's transcendent to me to mm-hmm. be in the presence of musicians like that you know, at at that level doing that thing because they're not surrounded by bums. You know, their voices are amazing and they're incredible musicians themselves, but the guys around them are, they're hoss cats, purebred hoss cats on whatever machine they're playing. And, um, I think that's where it can be. It can be tricky. It's like, do you give your kid the ability to play the guitar? Do you teach him how to use a soundboard and, and create a guitar sound? You know, right. I mean, which which is more artistic if this kid develops both. I mean, it's because there is still a like a, a you know base level knowledge of music that has to happen. For, you know, even in the instance where you're using a keyboard or or whatever, yeah, to create guitar, like you still have to understand how music works to yeah. make it sound good. Like you can't just start smashing keys and have it be melodic. Right, you know what right. I mean? So like there is a base level there, but I mean, it's. I, yeah, I, and why I go do back I even care? That's one of the questions exactly. I ask myself <laughs> right. all the time. Like, why do I, why do I kick the shit out of myself over all this stuff? Because I'm not really in a fight to do anything against it. I, I just mm. kind of like being a stick in the mud, mad about it. But um, I, I guess ultimately for me is I just want to understand and navigate my relationship with it. You know, I mm-hmm. don't want it to be the enemy because it's coming, um, but I don't want it to be you know, the magnet to a compass where it, it takes us off course of something. 
Uh, yeah. I, I just don't want to, I don't want to blindly accept this thing as all good. You know, yeah. I, I talk about it a lot. You know, humans are a one ripple uh, case study. We look at what needs fixed. We fix that and break 10 other things in the process. And this could really be one of those. And I guess to, to look at maybe the, the next evolution of that, you know, think back to, to all these things. Like you're given a remote control because you learn to control your TV, that's convenience. And then you're given, mm. a, you're given something that looks like a remote control, somewhat functions as a remote control for your life in the form of a phone. Then you're given AI that makes your life better. It makes your life comfortable. It makes this, this, and this. Oh, well, if we put this uh, Neuralink chip in your body, all this stuff that AI is doing can help you do it the same. You know, mm-hmm. again, I don't necessarily believe that's the the path, so to say, but as we get more and more comfortable with things, uh, it's just a very human nature <laughs> that, uh, that I think we always keep trying to push the envelope. You know, I, I heard a guy, uh, he's a comedian, but he, he said something pretty prophetic. He goes, no guy that spends his lunches at the whorehouse is going to go home and enjoy missionary with his wife, you know? And that's the thing about it is, when we have these expressions of, of, of the maximum or at the, at the peak, we're always looking for more. We always want more and mm-hmm. more and more and more and more. And we stop settling for what we have. That's already really good. You know, the, the pursuit of greatness can sometimes destroy your ability to see a lot of good. And I think that's, that's where we are now is that we're in the, we're in a place where it's like the fun factory. Anything we want is at our disposal and at our fingertips but I also look around and I see a lot of unhappy, broken people too. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't know how to to tie this all together, but I think we've gotten to a place where we have it so easy and we receive so much that we don't dedicate time to doing hard things and we don't dedicate time to processing. And I think that leaves us somewhat stunted as individuals. So mm-hmm. if we're feeling this at this level, of friction let's say what is the next level of friction feel like what is and that's something that i'm concerned about i guess we talked about some too in the last episode just the plight of humanity where are we going are we even aware of it is there a collective destination that we're trying to get to are we trying to be peaceful are we just out for ourselves and and where do these influences lead that you know mm-hmm. the man because I'm thinking about all of the all of the examples that we've given as it relates to to music, to art, to creativity, and then even when you had given the example of the like the knife makers, mm-hmm. right? There was this period of time where all that's all there was was what was created by humans, mm-hmm. because there wasn't anything else, you know. Yeah, and and that was like the only thing available. But then when the first part of the technology was supposed to come in and make that easier. That became originally it's always the more expensive option, right? Like it's the same thing like with electric vehicles, right? Like for the longest time, that wasn't really even feasible for most of the country because they're like $90,000 vehicles up at at the beginning. They're like, okay, well who's going to actually buy this? And then as they get cheaper over time or whatever, but then the same thing, like how many different mass produced knife things came along Mm -hmm. and eventually started dropping the price where you can go to a gas station and get like a decent knife. Yeah. You know, 20 bucks in the case. (laughs) Exactly. And then you come and then it kind of comes full circle back around where now, like I think people are starting to realize kind of like this whole thing we've been talking about the, the real value of stuff is still in the human element of it. Yeah. So like, that's why we're coming back around and you're seeing guys like Josh, who I'm actually wearing like two MKC things right now, unintentionally. Um, but like Josh sure. and Oliver and, and <laughs> Josh and Lucas and all these other guys that we know that are yeah. in, just in the knife world, like for example, are like those, that craft is becoming very cool, you know, cool, cool. right yeah. now. Like that's a really cool thing. And uh, they're, because they're seeing like, wow, this, the human element of this, the craftsmanship and the knowledge and the time it took to get to this level is actually amazing. Mm-hmm. And we need to do more to support this kind of stuff. And so I think like, you know, we're talking about with us, AI with music and art, 
and even the coaching example, I think like Dr. Galpin and nailed it. Like there will be that full circle moment where we see the true value still is going to be, no matter how easy the other thing makes it for a lot of people, the value will come back around and be like, I need the human element of this. Well, you know, it, your statement just then kind of propelled two thoughts. One, I was thinking about Jesse James, um, have one of his, uh, have one of his pistols, uh, one of his early, early models. And uh, I don't want to tell that whole story because it's long, but uh, cool story. And his guns are now three to five times at, at starting point what this one was when I had it built. Yep. Um, so, but I was thinking about his motorcycles. And I remember somebody asking him, maybe it was Leno or Letterman, but they're like, do you really think your motorcycle is worth $150,000? And he said, well, my motorcycle is worth about 40 grand, but my time is worth 110 grand, you yeah. know? And, um, it was the, the fact that he does everything hand hammered or, you know, he has his yep. hands on everything. And really one of the most inspirational things, and, and I'm glad that I found it while he was still alive was, uh, Bourdain's, uh, handcrafted series on YouTube. Have you ever seen oh, it? Oh yeah, I haven't. It's uh 10, maybe 10, 12 episodes, but they're all shorts, 10 to 15 minutes where he goes around to these people and people that he's artists that he's used or, or craftsmen that he's used, um, had a pair of, uh, boots made by a guy, you know, went to, uh, a small batch distillery. Um, you know, just some of the stuff that he would get into really highlighting, well, you pay $3,000 for these pair of boots, but one, they're going to last forever. Mm-hmm. This place literally has a block mold of your feet for the rest of your life. If you ever call and say, Hey, I need a pair of boots. This is what we pull out. You don't have to come in like, you know, a a good pair of boots may not be $3,000. Like you might be able to get a great pair at your local tractor supply or whatever, but it is somebody who understands and, and, and has an appreciation for, and maybe a capability to access this craftsman's work. Like there's a lot of, there's a guy here in Lexington that'll build you a custom motorcycle for 50, 60 grand, you know, and it's amazing, but are you paying for that custom motorcycle? Are you paying for Jesse James to do it? Are you paying for, what are you paying for? And like, if you have the money, you get to decide that, you know, but I, Mm -hmm. I do think that you're probably right in that overall, Cream's going to rise. You know, the, yeah. the only way that the computers win is that the humans let them, you know, and uh, we're definitely making it harder on ourselves. But I do think that humans have pretty, done a pretty great job over the millennia of facing down, you know, nature's best. We're still here. So mm-hmm. I don't know. It, 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 it makes me wonder if there will be like a singular like sort of tipping point. Cataclysmic you know what I mean? event. Yeah. right yeah like is it gonna Starlink. get to is it Star- gonna become the matrix or is it yeah. gonna be like <laughs> Dude, i don't i don't know it, it really does like it fascinates me at a level of of you know part of it is probably paranoia and not in a like i'm sitting here shaking and building a bomb shelter kind of way but just like man what the hell could come next but then yeah. there's also a part of me that that is very very hopeful and i guess encouraged at what could be because it's like man, if, if 10 bad people can find this technology and corrupt, what can 10 good people do with it? You mm. know? And, and I think sometimes I need to do a better job of balancing that coin of like, okay, well, how, how good is it in good hands and how bad is it in bad hands? And what's the outcome yeah. of that? You know, but right. I, I just do think that for myself, I mean, it, again, I think it's some, some kind of psychosis that I have, but I find comfort just in reading about the materials, you know, on, on, on certain subjects, like I just want to stay abreast of certain things. Again, I'm not actively out here trying to make anti AI technology, but I'm just, you know, I'm trying to be aware of what it is, where it's going. Um, mm-hmm. try to stay aware of what the government's doing at the 11th hour, you know, when we're all asleep, uh, see how much more money Ukraine needs, uh, those mm-hmm. kind of things, you know, I just, mm-hmm. uh, I just try to pay attention. Um, I'm claiming Zelensky this year. Uh, (laughs) 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 So um, I just need to know how much I can ask for. Get a fat refund check. I just, you know, 
just a little pocket money would be nice. You know? Right. So, but Eight anyway, I, I think it's just, that's one of the things that helps me and it breaks things down to a level of like, all right, the only things I can control are the things that I'm controlling. So yeah, that's, that's kind of where I like to stay is just on the path of doing what I'm supposed to do. Well, and in, and in kind of in closing, there's, I think that is probably the more common, maybe not more common, but I think it's a rising sort of thought process, you know, especially the, just these last couple of years in general with everything everybody's seen and on how much things can be affected. And this will kind of, I guess, tie it back into the original point that we had started with about like the news this morning about the FAA thing, right? Like how simple and easy it can really be to shut down the entire nation's flight transportation system. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? And I mean, how many tens of millions of dollars is that losing? Man, you know I, what I mean? Over the course of just a few hours. Well, and, right? and like, what what level of faith are the American people losing in our air, airlines? I mean, you exactly. know, Southwest is, is still kind of reeling uh, stock market wise. Three weeks ago. Yeah. And they, they handled that pretty poorly, I think, in, in the beginning. Um, but man, you know, I travel a lot. I fly a lot. And it's it's steadily gotten worse as far as, you know, and not to say that you should be back in the 1960s where everyone's smoking on a plane and grabbing stewardess asses, but you know there was a time where uh, a flight was somewhat of a destination in itself. You know the, the yeah. airlines prided themselves on the service. It and, was a luxury service yeah, almost, it, it just was. on its own. And, and it really, it, it's crazy that it's not viewed as that because flights are so accessible. But man, when I when I think about it, sometimes I didn't really start traveling till I was in my mid twenties, you know, and powerlifting opened that door. And I can remember going to California, which my papa, when I was young, he said, if you ever tell me you're going to California, you might as well say you're going to the moon. You know, that was just, <laughs> you know, we went to Gatlinburg and Myrtle beach. Like that was it. You know, <laughs> right. we didn't go, we didn't venture out too far from the woodwork, but, um, you know, I still, I, I definitely have forgotten what a privilege it is to fly, but I, you know, have been reminded of it. And then I, even in my own, 15, 20 years of really strenuous travel have I, I've seen a downturn in just customer service across the board. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, so maybe there's, maybe they'll wake up through this, this rough patch, but you know, that's one of my favorite. I think it's, a, I think it's a Louis CK bit that he did, uh, years ago talking about flying yeah. and how people just complain about everything on, yeah. you know, I got to have to wait 30 minutes on the tarmac. Like how dare they make me wait? And he's like, and then what's going to happen? Are you going to fly through the air like a bird yeah. and then like be across? He's like, he used to take, or he's like, it takes four hours to get from New York to LA. He's like, used to take 30 years. Yeah. Bun bunch <laughs> of you would die along the way. Typhoid like, was you'd a be problem. A whole, <laughs> you'd be a whole different group of people when you got there. Like, yeah, you have grandkids like, by the time you get there. exactly <laughs> nah, but dude it, it really is though it, but i will my one pet peeve is that the amount of people that have the money to fly yet cannot figure out how to walk onto an airplane and put a bag in there above <laughs> in the above compartment in a timely fashion i promise you mm. if i'm ever in a situation that's why i always get exit rows like Mm -hmm. If I'm ever in a situation, because I know people would want to save their bag and they'd want to get their computer, I am literally kicking the door out and jumping. Like, I'm going <laughs> to take whatever safety device I got. But if I'm beyond the exit row, it's assholes and elbows till I get off that thing because I'm not helping anybody. <laughs> like, I am the least helpful citizen on that plane because I know how pitiful those citizens are getting on a plane. Mm. So. Mm -hmm. And then know. get them, throw them in a panic situation yeah, and watch oh, how yeah, they dude. handle it. I think, get, do you ever go through an airport and just look at the, the bewilderment on some of those people's faces? It's mm. like, what would you do in an actual stressful situation? I mean, it's, it's, it cracks me up, man. Just seeing people. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you this from, I mean, it's your secondhand experience, I guess, but my, my mom is a travel agent. Oh, wow. Like and has been for thirty something years. Yeah, and I mean, even just the story she tells me about the people that just come into her office or call her from the airport that like will then hand the phone to the gal behind the desk, so my mom then has to talk to the gal behind the desk, like on this client's phone, like stuff like that. Like, yeah, it's just the whole logic and rationale based portion of your brain explodes. Yeah, 
and they just there's they're they don't they panic like there's just yeah. no way to handle panic it's so unbelievable well and i think it's also just a sign of the me culture like we just go back to the fact that i'm getting on the plane i'm gonna put my <laughs> bag up i'm not worried about anybody else getting on the plane because i'm here this is my plane this is my yeah, exactly. flight this is my experience and these other people are just going to have to wait, you know, and it yep, uh, exactly. drives me nuts. But anyway, <laughs> that's one problem I can't fix. <laughs> well, and there's, there's a lot of people today that are going to learn that too. <laughs> like, they can't fix any of it oh, going yeah, on today. Sure, well, uh, we'll call it there, man. That was a fun one. Yeah, it was Let's, fun. I appreciate uh, you, man. Yeah. We'll catch everybody next week. All right. Thanks, guys. Time to get your checking account to zero with free checking from PenFed. That's zero ATM fees, zero balance requirements, and zero time spent waiting for your paycheck to direct deposit because you can receive it up to two days early. Open your account with just $25 and see how big zero can be. Apply online today at penfed.org slash free checking. Early direct deposit eligibility may vary between pay periods and timing of payers' funding. To receive any advertised product, you must become a member of PenFed, insured by NCUA. PenFed's got-